as my title um, suggests, um, I want to explore in this paper um, the view that the Empedocles um, world is both dynamic and changeless and investigate um, the metaphysical account uh, that Empedocles gives for such a world. It's a world that is exciting, where lots of wondrous things happen, where, in the words of Empedocles, um, 10,000 tribes of mortals poured forth, fit together in all kinds of form, a wonder to behold, end of quote. What makes this world perhaps even more wondrous is that all that happens in it happens without there being creation or destruction of what has eternally been there, nor creation of anything new from it, not even quali qualitative change. All there is has always been and will always be. So how does Empedocles build such a world? How can his world be both dynamic and changeless? The place to start to address these questions is the ontological warehouse. So what does Empedocles ontology include at the fundamental level? Four, six or even seven items, namely the four elements, or the four elements plus love and strife, or the four elements plus love and strife plus necessity. What is the metaphysical status of these items? And what accounts for what uh, in Empedocles' world? So starting with the elements, um, his discovery is one of Empedocles' uh, breakthroughs. Um, again, the question is, what is their metaphysical status? And from, from the point of view I'm interested in, um, I want to explore um, uh, the following question. So the elements are primitively in matter properties, or we could say primitively qualified stuff. Mm -hmm. Empedocles does not have the resources, does not draw a conceptual distinction between matter and properties that qualify it. So maybe we can, talk, we can think of the elements not as stuff that has qualities, but as unalterably qualified stuff. So it's stuff that is qualified and unalterably so, namely it doesn't admit of, admit of alteration. So my question is, what is the nature of such uh, qualified stuff? And here is the one million dollar question, is it inert or is it causally powerful? And if powerful, is its nature exhaustively accounted for by its powerfulness? That is, is it, exhausted, is it exhaustively accounted for by what it does or can do? Here are the options. If Empedocles elements were inert, they would be incapable of causal efficacy of their own. So if involved in any kind of change, they would uh, require an external efficient um, agent to set them in motion. For example, staff whose only qualification um, was to be shaped spherically, arguably would not by itself be causally um, powerful. So that's one way, possible way of thinking about the elements. On the other hand, if Empedocles elements were merely powerful stuff, their powerfulness being defined by their ability to interact with other items, then all elemental qualifications would be accounted for in terms of interaction that, rather than in terms of ways of being. So, for example, stuff whose only qualification was to be hot, arguably, would be defined merely by its heating up something else, which is less hot. So, that's a second conceptual possibility. What I want to argue for is a third view, uh, that is, that Empedocles' elements are best accounted for as follows. They have ways in which they are, namely the qualities that qualify them, 
but also they are uh, they're qualified they, they are things they can do so they have powerfulness and furthermore they have powers that are bestowed upon them so just to repeat quickly the view that i want to argue for the elements are uh, as I want to argue, best accounted for in terms of the ways in which they are, the things they can do, and the powers that are bestowed upon them. So that's the third view. So inertness, pure powerfulness, and this kind of combined view, that is the third one. Understanding which of these alternatives, just quickly sketched, accounts best for Empedocles' conception of the elements will determine, I think, the way we understand life, love, and strife as well. There is a very well-established language interpretation according to which love and strife are divine agents playing the role of efficient, causal, um, efficient causes in Empedocles' system. And this view has been argued for, for example, by David in his creationism um, book. What I will argue here for is a, it's a, it's a different view. I'm making a departure from, from the... Um, uh, love and strife agents uh, or craftsmen's uh, view. Uh, I want to argue that love and strife play in Empedocles' system the role of what we nowadays call laws of nature, even if, of course, Empedocles did not have the terms laws of nature. And there are uh, sui generis laws of nature, as I will explore in the rest of the paper. A further question is whether Empedocles' system uh, possibly requires something more in addition to laws of nature. Uh, the laws of nature that are explicitly um, described by Empedocles. Uh, it might be, and I think this, uh, that this is so, that what Empedocles wants to account for uh, cannot be accounted fully by the two laws of nature, the three laws of nature that um, he um, brings in his account. And it, in this case, then, a further causal intervention is needed for explaining all the phenomena. And if this is so, maybe we do need to appeal to divine intervention. And I think this might be ultimately a point of convergence with David's view. So maybe there the need to be a divine agent in the picture, um, but it's not, uh, in my view, to be um, identified with love and strife. Even so, even if uh, we might need to acknowledge that Empedocles cannot explain all he wants to explain with the, with the elements as he defines them and with the laws of nature that he introduces, even so, um, even if he might need ultimately a divine agent to do a little bit more of the work once um, uh, it, it, Empedocles needs to do to explain nature, I think it would be uh, important to acknowledge the uh, naturalistic drive that Empedocles um, uh, has in seeking explanations in nature as opposed to um, in the divine and the novelty of the way he identifies laws of nature. Finally, understanding the um, nature and the metaphysical status of the elements um, will enable us to address the question of whether this system is a power ontology or not. Uh, what I will argue is that it's a kind of sui generis um, power ontology. And it's an additional further question to specify which kind of power ontology is it. And um, my um, particular interest is to investigate whether it is a power structuralist ontology. And I will come to this topic in the final section of my paper. Okay, um, that's the map uh, of what I want to uh, investigate in this paper. Um, it sounds like a lot, so I hope I'll be able to cover it all. But if not, we can come back to the, some of the topics in discussion. So starting now with the building blocks of Empedocles' world, it is probably the best known fact about Empedocles uh, since antiquity that his ontological warehouse includes what we nowadays call the four elements, water, um, earth, fire, um, and um, 
What did I forget? Uh, <laughs> thank you. At times, Empedocles uses names of traditional Greek gods to refer to the elements. And uh, in my view, the gods' names seem to um, operate like placeholders. Um, uh, I, there might be additional reasons compatible with this one, why Empedocles chooses to use divine names. Um, and uh, in that, I'm in agreement uh, with what Oliver says um, in his own work about the it's uh, about the uh, attempt of Empedocles to um, uh, retain somehow the, divin the traditional divinities of his time by just naturalizing them. But uh, that's a different story, let's leave it aside. So uh, the, the idea that I want to put forward is that the names of traditional Greek uh, divinities are for Empedocles placeholders, and I will say in a moment, placeholders for what? Um, the elements are also called rhizomata, uh, roots or rootings, and um, uh, at least uh, once in the fragments um, in, uh, directly transmitted to us. And uh, here I agree with David that it's not meant to be a technical term. Um, nevertheless, uh, I think the choice of this term is significant uh, for reasons that I'll come to uh, later. The elements are said to be diamorpha, so they are diversified in four kinds. They are different, but they are not primitively different, i.e. inexplicably different. They are defined each by a set of qualities, causal powers and characteristic functions. So there are three types of things that qualify the um, elements. So there are um, examples that I can quickly give you. Um, um, for example, um, Empedocles says, quote, first, here of the four roots of all these things, gleaming Zeus and life-bringing Hera and Idoneus and Nestis, who moistens with tears the springs of mortals. Um, elsewhere, he speaks about blazing sun or the fire being bright and hot, water being dark and cold, earth is the, uh, as the origin of solidity. Um, either, um, uh squeezing all the elements together, uh, earth um, having a kind of shaggy might, and so on and so forth. So um, that's just uh, not an exhaustive list, but just to um, give you a sense that there are um, at least these three types of qualifications that characterize the elements, <coughs> and um, uh, uh, they are different, ontologically speaking. So, for example, being shaggy seems to be an inert quality, gleaming is an activity, uh, the capacity to harden other things is a causal power. So it seems to me that for Empedocles the elements are not defined only in terms of what they do or what change they can bring about. So they're not defined only in terms of the causal powers, they also have qualities, some of which seem to be inert. Um, so I think that um, the elements are not merely immaterial powers. There is more to them than that. On the other hand, the elements are not completely inert either, since they can do things and they have causal impact of their own. So, the view requires a bit more uh, investigation. What additional features define the elements? Well, we know that one of their common features is that they are eternal and unchanging, and this is justified by Empedocles' commitment to um, the Parmenidian veto of change, so no creation, no destruction, no qualitative change. This is attested in many of the fragments. And everything else there is, uh, is metaphysically reducible to the elements. So what, uh, um, what the elements are, are truly the building blocks of everything else there is. Everything else can be reduced to composition and decomposition of the elements. And B17 is a fragment that brings this out very clearly, but there are many other places in which this is clear. So how does composition of the four elements explain all that takes place in nature? 
Well, um, composition makes things appear to be uh, different, and here again, B17 is a piece of um, textual evidence, uh, B21 as well. Um, how does that work? Well, I think that there are nice analogies in Morelato's um, 1986 uh, paper, where he talks about painting te techniques at the time of Empedocles, weaving techniques, or um, he even describes beaches in Sicily, whereby um, mixing together sand of different colors produces the appearance of something different from the two mixed colors. So there are ways of explaining what Empedocles um, uh, means there. Um, but um, I need to emphasize here, although I'll come back to it later, that um, the idea of uh, mixing sand of different colors or weaving um, uh, te uh, textile materials of different colors and so on does not really capture the metaphysics of Empedocles. It's a nice image to explain how the combination can generate appearance of new things, but it's not quite the best analogy, I think, for his metaphysics. I'll come back um, later on to that. So the next question I want to come to is, by which mechanism do the elements mix and separate? Um, we have an important clue in Empedocles' text that they learn to uh, mix and separate. So um, I take this to mean that the elements do not um, mix and separate of their own or uh, by themselves. Um, in fact, their, their mixing and separation is always, is always associated with um, love and strife. So the question is, what is the role of life, love and strife in achieving composition and separation of the models? One question is, are love and strife additional constituents entering composition like earth, fire, water and air do, and thus contributing to the new appearances that come about when the elements combine? And some interpreters have taken this view. For example, uh, Brad Inwood says that about love, that, quote, her binding power is like that of glue, in that she enters into the compounds which she <coughs> binds together, end of quote. So love is here taken to glue together, for example, water and earth, and if so, for symmetry, I would say, presumably, strife should be an ingredient too, operating as a repellent, so mixing to, with the elements to separate them out. For example, separating out fire and air. Inwood's interpretation, which is as I sketch, rests on his translation of um, a couple of lines in B17, which are the ones that I um, uh, put down in your handouts in, Greek, in, in the original Greek, and in particular on the translation of Atalanton Apante as like in every respect. So Inwood thinks that if the elements and love and strife are alike in every respect, they are alike also in their ability to mix. Um, but I must say I don't find this interpretation compelling um, for um, uh, three reasons. I think that there are philosophical reasons why love and strife cannot be constituents of the composites in the way in which Inwood describes. Um, the translation also that uh, he gives um, is not the only possible, and the occurrences of the Greek word um, kolla and the derivative um, uh, once in Empedocles text um, have been explained, I think persuasively, by Morelatus as not referring to blue. Um, I'll tell you a bit more in a moment. So starting from the philosophical reasons, the, my argument is this. If love were an ingredient, glue, strife would be an ingredient to a repellent, um, combined with each type of element to facilitate separation. Um, from the others. If so, um, uh, for theory, uh, strife should be in composition with the elements, uh, enable, enabling them to repel unlike elements when the elements are perfectly separated in four masses um, under the uh, domination of strife. But if strife were an ingredient 
of the four masses, then they would not be chemically pure in their fullest state of separation, contrary to what Empedocles himself claims. So um, it cannot be the case that love and strife are constituents or ingredients, because if they were, the fact that strife would be present as a repellent in the four masses would undermine the chemical purity of the four masses, and that cannot be the case. So that's my main argument against um, Brandt's interpretation. Um, I also um, think that Atalantona Pantei can be translated differently. Um, I have some suggestions here. Um, maybe we can think that we could, could be translated as inequipoise or of equal weight or might everywhere. Options to be discussed. I just put them on the table. And then regarding the occurrences of colla and the related um, words and verbs, I like the comment that Morelatus makes um, that um, this is a term that was used in Homeric descriptions of um, chariots where there is no glue at all. It just indicates the strength that things get when they are closely overlapping. And Colletus is specifically an epithet of chariots which are hardly glued. So I don't think that, um, in sum, I don't think that the idea that love and uh, strife are um, ingredients and mm -hmm. particularly that life operates like glue um, is is a it's a compelling interpretation. So, um, how else should we conceive of love and strife? Well, um, uh, what I want to argue for um, that is that love and strife, as well as necessity, um, stand in for the normativity uh, that regulates Empedocles' um, world. And in fact, Empedocles' world, I want to say, has two layers of normativity. It's a world where there is necessity, which is quite clear from a variety of um, fragments. Um, Empedocles says that there is an oracle of necessity, an ancient decree of the gods, eternal, sealed upon with broad oaths. This way of describing necessity is important to me, as I will say in a moment. Um, I think, in fact, um, the way Empedocles presents necessity displays remarkable philosophical sophistication for the following reason. Necessity is what prescribes the alternation of love and strife. But it does so in an interesting way, as, uh, which is described by Empedocles using concepts such as um, the one of a note or an ordinance. So what's the metaphysical implication of that? Well, I think it would be helpful to contrast the way in which an agent can bring about something and a note or uh, ordinance can bring about something. Oaths do not act, they don't operate on the world as agents um, do when they intervene through their actions to change the course of events. Empedocles is not telling us that necessity intervenes causally like, a, like an agent would do, um, bringing about the uh, uh, domain of uh, love and strife. As, you know, as an agent would do so. On the, uh, rather, necessity operates as a rule. Uh, rules are prescriptive. They confine and regulate and constrain possible, possible phenomena. What rules prohibit does not happen. What rules require happen. So rules operate on the world by normativity, not by efficient causality. Rules that regulate nature have an impersonal impact on, on nature itself. Um, that seems to me it seems to me that Empedocles, by describing necessity uh, as regulating natural phenomena in these impersonal terms, in terms of a note, oath that prescribes what's going to happen, is telling us that necessity does not operate as a divine agent. Uh, Empedocles is giving here a conception of normativity, which I think it's, it's interesting and, and uh, um, alike the idea we have of laws of nature. 
But there is an interesting uh, twist to this story, I would say, uh, because necessity as a law of nature has as its own domain love and strife, which I'd say are also laws of nature. Um, so uh, if this is the case, if there are these two levels of normativity, then we have necessity operating as a law of nature on love and strife, which operate as laws of nature on the elements. And that seems to me makes um, necessity a sort of meta law of nature, which operates on other laws of nature, which themselves uh, operate on the elements. Um, that's interesting, that's complex, and requires a bit more investigation. So how can a law of nature operate on other laws of nature? Let's uh, first state the way um, love and strife operate as laws of nature and then bring out the contrast between that way of operating and the way of operating of necessity. So love and strife operate on the elements by empowering them, by bestowing powers upon the elements to act in certain ways. So love and strife bestows on the elements the power to um, come together or separate out one from the other. My question is, if Necessity is also a law, laws of nature, law of nature operating on love and strife. Is necessity now operating on love and strife by bestowing powers on love and strife? That sounds odd. But if it is not the case, then in which way does necessity operate as a law of nature on, um, on, on love and strife? I think that here there are conceptual difficulties, but there are, uh, that are that derive from the fact that um, Empedocles talks of love and strife as beha behaving as if they were individuals that take turns in running the world. So love and love, laws of nature typically, we would say, do not change their operation. They don't periodically withdraw and then come back into the picture. Um, such behavior is rather typical of individuals with causal powers rather than laws of nature with the jurisdictional domain of application. Um, so. It seems to me that um, Empedocles is it's something that I'm, I can only gesture here. I'm the in the position now of only gesturing to this. But I want to say that I think that there is something interesting ongoing here um, about how Empedocles conceives of laws of nature. I think it's, um, it's probably giving us something. It's not only giving us a first, I think, in the history of philosophy by, by introducing laws of nature in the system, but it's also giving us an interesting conception of laws of nature and possibly meta-laws of nature, which I think is worthwhile being explored. Um, I'll just give you what the um, theoretical possibilities are here and tell you which one I think might be the most probable. Although, as I say, I can only gesture to this because I think it's an area for further investigation that goes beyond what I was able to do for today. So, um, we could think that necessity operates in the same way in which laws and, uh, sorry, loves and, love and strife operate. So, necessity empowers uh, love and strife. Well, here is a good result of this um, idea. There is uniformity um, in the way in which the laws operate. So, necessity functions as a law in the same way in which love and strife operate as laws. But there is also an unwelcome result that is that uh, love and strife seem to be treated here as the elements themselves, um, namely they get in power with further powers that they didn't have before necessity operated as a law. So that sounds um, unwelcome. But that's a one um, conceptual possibility. The other one is that uh, necessity maybe does not empower love and strife, but actually brings about the periodic alternation um, somehow differently. Well, this line of thinking seems promising because uh, it allows us to treat um, love and strife as 
blows rather than elements that get bestowed causal powers on them, but it also has an unwelcome result in the sense that we are left wonder about what mechanism love and strife uses to operate on, um, um, sorry, which mechanism necessity uses to operate on love and strife. Uh, is it a kind of causal mechanism, efficient mechanism, any other kind of divine mechanism? We don't know. A third possibility um, is that um, maybe um, necessity does empower love and strife, but empowers them with different kinds of powers than the powers that love and strife bestow upon the elements. So love and strife bestow upon the elements powers for special movement. So love and strife make the elements move around, come together and separate out. Maybe necessity uh, empowers love and strife of different kinds, um, diff different kinds of powers from that. What, and I'd like to call this tentatively uh, normative powers. So by this I don't mean that necessity um, empowers love and strife with efficient causal powers on normative grounds. I rather want to say that um, uh, necessity empowers the elements, uh, sorry, love and strife with a special kind of power, which is the power to act normatively or the powers to play a normative role in nature. And that seems to me maybe the most plausible um, way forward to understand Empedocles, but it would require further work, which um, is for me, um, you know, a project, um, ongoing project, uh, not something uh, I, you know, I can talk conclusively about um, now. But that's a picture that um, I want to sketch for you. So necessity, as well as love and strife, I think are best understood as laws of nature, with this um, further depth in the account uh, that Empedocles gives of them, namely, um, it seems to be that um, necessity is a law of nature which has as domain of application two other laws of nature, which themselves has, have a, as domain of application the elements themselves. Um, so it's quite interesting, it's, it's quite structured as an account, and I think um, we worthwhile investigate it um, more, both in terms of how necessity operates on the uh, uh, other laws of nature, but also about which kind of powers might be in play here. So my, it seems to me that love and strife are laws of nature which empower the elements with efficient move, so, sorry, with, with power for uh, special movement, but necessity empowers love and strife with other kinds of powers, normative powers, I call them for the time being. So pursuing a bit more now the uh, investigation of love and strife, um, uh, we know that the elements compose and separate under the domination of love and strife. I've suggested that the uh, love and strife themselves are, are laws of nature, what we would call laws of nature, and I want to flesh out a bit more the account now, focusing just on lo love and strife and no more on necessity. So what more do we know about love and strife from the fragments? Well, um, we know that um, they are uh, eternal, they are equal in life span, and they are equal in strength. But they are different in ethos, um, Empedocles says. So what does that mean? Well, their ethos or character or nature is different because their rule over the elements is different. What's interesting here, I think, is that um, the ethos of love and strife is exhaustively defined by the rule over the elements. And I say this because for the following reasons, that at, at least in the text we have no extra feature is attributed to love and strife, except that love is called by the name of Aphrodite, um, uh, 
cookeries um, some, in some of the texts. But it, my contention is that this does not have metaphysical implications. So all there is to love and strife is that um, they are, uh, uh, all there is to their nature is that they uh, are different rules over the elements. The rule consists in prescribing composition and separation of the elements. And that's, I think, this kind of view of love and strife is supported again by um, that clue that I already referred to, that the elements learn to grow together and grow apart. It's not something that they do that by themselves, they learn it. And this learning, I think, is indicating that they get this power for special movement from something else, and these are love and strife, I'd say. Love and strife, just to reiterate the point, don't have themselves causal efficacy on the elements. They don't act upon them, but rather they empower them and they enable the elements to act causally themselves. And that causal movement uh, is that causal action that the elements are able to do is to move around, to compose and separate out. Composition and separation are described by Empedocles as the result of uh, attraction among the elements. So um, maybe what uh, we could say is that love and strife empower the elements with the attraction among each other. There are two types of attraction, the like-to-like -like prescribed by strife and the unlike-to-unlike -unlike prescribed by love. But um, maybe we could, at least in light of B22, I think we could even say that attraction is always like-to-like, -like, even under love, because love makes the unlike be like by assimilation, by mixture. Of course, at the micro level, things are, might be uh, different in the sense that there is always the unlike attracting and the unlike. But there is a way in which we could possibly generalize and say that the general principle is always attraction like to like, because even when love makes the elements that are unlike each other attract each other, is doing so by making them uh, alike, by assimilating them. So how is composition and separation implemented? Uh, it's implemented by means of the elements moving specially. The um, elements run, according to Empedocles, towards like and run away from the unlike under strife, or they run towards the unlike and away from the like under love. It's interesting here, it's uh, again in connection with with the way in which we talk, think about the laws of nature, is that um, Empedocles seems to say that although it is a law under strife that fire, for example, is attracted to fire, there is no metaphysical necessary, necessary connection between fire and being attracted to fire because the situation changes under the different laws of nature. And this has interesting resonance, I think, with the contemporary view that laws of nature are contingent truths. So if it is a law of nature that all Fs are Gs, then there need not be any metaphysically necessary connection between Fness and Gness, we would say. And I think that's what Empedocles captures with this idea that love and strife can empower the elements with different kind of powers according to the period, depending on when, which of the two uh, laws, um, rules are on them. Um, so the elements run um, towards each other, they actually run through each other, and that's a very um, uh, important um, point that uh, Empedocles make. The running through each other is facilitated uh, for the elements by the fact that they have a sort of porous nature. Um, and we have evidence in the text, but also in the indirect uh, tradition. 
But I think that something that is not quite explicit, maybe in Empedocles, but um, should be brought out, is that uh, the running through is um, uh, made possible, um, for the running through to be possible in the way Empedocles envisages it, uh, we need also to postulate that the elements have a sort, sort of suppleness. So they're not kind of hard structures, they're supple structures, supple bodies. Um, they're soft somehow. They're not only porous, they're also soft. Um, and uh, I find a comment by Morelatus um, quite uh, apt to describe this kind of metaphysics. Um, so he um, starts developing an insight from, Aris uh, from Aristotle that Empedocles ontology is a kind of transition towards atomism, where, where there are soft structures and subtle bodies kind of interacting with each other, getting together with each other. Um, so I'd like to propose this way of visualizing this kind of metaphysics, an analogy with this with sponges, right? Sponges are porous and they are soft, and you can imagine the elements as being kind of compressed sponges and sort of connected together. Um, yes, I see David uh, smiling there. Yes, <laughs> it's a way of thinking about it. But we need to think that um, we need to uh, to think of them as not having empty um, channels because there is no void in the system. So if there are sponges, they're always compressed in such a way that or filled in, so there is never an empty channel. Um, that's the caveat of my image. Imagine these sponges coming together. They have different uh, degrees of um, composition of strength of composition, we could put it this way, um, according to the degree of progression that love and strife have in relation to each other in the cycle. And that's something that um, the cycle and more is something that uh, Oliver will talk about, so I'll not go into that. But um, just um, I want to just move on, uh, considering the two extreme states of separation and composition. On one hand, we have the four masses under the domination of um, strife, and uh, on the other hand, we have the spirals under the domination of um, love. Um, it seems to me noteworthy that uh, under both love and strife, uniformity is brought about, but different kinds of uniformity. So um, under uh, love, we have the uniform mixture, where everything is mixed with everything else. And on the side of strife, we have the uniformity, the, uh, the purity of each of the elements, each of the four masses. I think it's a further question that um, it's not, to be I don't want to explore here, but it's a further question to think how Empedocles envisaged this virus who could actually come about, metaphysically speaking. It seems to me that um, someone like Anaxagoras um, has a metaphysics for the original mixture that um, I talk about in a, in a different paper um, in terms of gunky uh, properties, it's, but Empedocles doesn't have any explicit mechanism for explaining how really everything can mix with everything else. Um, it's, I think that count is underdeveloped, may be here. Um, but yes, so um, uniformity, both under love and under strife, and different degrees of uh, unity in the system. So uniformity, we could think as the lowest degree of uh, unity, it's purity for the masses and complete mixture for the uh, spirals. Then there is um, structure, and then there is structure plus function. So maybe I shouldn't say that there are three different degrees of unity, but there are different types of unity that we can discern in, in um, Empedocles system. So there is the unity that um, amounts to simply uniformity, there is the unity that amounts to structure, and I think this virus might be an example. And then there is the unity that is um, made, um, derived from structure plus function, for example, the eye. So that seems to me the strongest kind of unity that something can have, that the elements can achieve within the system of Empedocles. 
Both under love and strife, the elements generate structures, but under love, the elements in addition generate functional structure, which we can consider maybe, pro in some cases, proto-natural kinds, for example, blood, and in other cases, proto-sortas, maybe, like the eye. So it's interesting. I mean, there is a lot of sophistication, it seems to me, that can be um, explored uh, here about um, what composition can bring about? Seems to me that can bring about a variety of things. Uniformity, structure, structure plus, plus function. Interesting and worth investigating more. But the issue of how love can bring about structure plus function uh, brings me back one more time to the question of what are love and strife. And I'm sort of close to um, concluding as well. So um, I want to come back one more time to the um, interpretative line that um, love and strife are divine agents. Um, <coughs> the view, as I say, has been defended by um, uh, David, has been, uh, who describes love as a carpenter, and um, uh, uh, indeed all the six, he says, major players in the Empedocles system, um, are construed non-reductively as divinities. But the view was also defended in... Um, you know, a couple of uh, decades earlier by um, Morelatos uh, talking about love as a cosmic craftsman. He says, love is not only a carpenter, she is also pictured as a potter, kneading, modeling, baking the clay, and so on and so forth. I find this line of interpretation attractive, appealing, um, and so on. That's why I want to pay justice to it, coming back to it one more time. Uh, I, as, I, um, as I said, um, it seems to me that the textual evidence um, is strong for thinking that the elements are empowered to act causally, they learn to behave in specific ways, under um, the, uh, the, the influence, under the domination of what I think we would identify as laws of nature. And it seems to me, if this is the metaphysical picture, then the fact that Empedocles talks about divine entities is a rhetorical, poetical choice, is a way of... Um, helping the reader maybe to latch on to the topic that Empedocles, the philosophical issues that Empedocles is talking about. So I think that the metaphysical idea is that love and strife are laws of nature, but they're called with names of divinity, um, you know, partly because this is a poem, partly because this is to talk to a wide audience and so on and so forth. Yeah, it seems to me that love and strife cannot be divine agents. If they are laws of nature, they cannot, they cannot also be divine agents. But on the other hand, as I mentioned in my introduction, I think that I might have, um, in this interpretation, a point of convergence with David, and um, you know, I've been looking forward to hearing um, his thoughts on this. It seems to me that uh, if, we if we rethink about what Empedocles wanted to explain in nature, there are some phenomena that he can explain by having love and strife operating like laws of nature, but there are some others where um, it would be really stretched to think that laws of nature, as Empedocles describes them, can really pull off the account. So let me just quickly um, go through this. So I think if we think of love and strife as natural laws, as I describe them, I think that they can explain attraction of fire to fire, attraction of fire to air, that earth is moistened by being mixed by water, that earth is hardened by being heated by fire. But um, there are other natural phenomena that Empedocles is aware of, and they are explanatory, much more demanding, I think, and that the simple laws of love and strife cannot account for. So, for example, um, blood or bone, and how they come about from composition. 
or um, how things and their parts like human beings can come about from composition of the elements. This seems to me a sort of um, um, kind of um, um, higher, um, more challenging uh, uh, type of, of uh, they seem to me higher, more difficult types of uh, complexity uh, uh, and structure to account for than the other ones. And for them, the laws of nature that Empedocles brings in the picture, I think, are not sufficient. Uh, the eye or the human body and so on are structures that are also able to perform functions that mere staff of whatever kind cannot perform. For example, seeing, hearing, digesting. It's not the it, love and strife as laws of nature determining the composition of the four elements are not sufficient, I think, for a country. So, of course, we could say that there are extra laws of nature that uh, mm -hmm. account for how um, uh, hearing comes about, digesting comes about, and so on. But that would not be, I think, a very smart move because um, we will just, um, you know, um, uh, add further laws and then need to explain how they come about. It, it just seems very ad hoc and so on and so forth. It seems to beg the question somehow, you know, what is the origin of such laws if we need them to explain the origin of this um, complex structures which also have functions. So here it seems to me that the account um, as we have it in the text we have is simply incomplete. I think that more needs to be said and Pedocles doesn't say it in the in the fragments we have and it's possible that in, uh, he might need to appeal to uh, divine intervention. So what I want to say is that I think my general reflection is this. Um, it seems to me that we should pay justice to the idea that Empedocles is very driven by trying to give a naturalistic explanation of how things operate. That uh, this is why he's thinking of the elements, the elements being uh, empowered by laws of nature to move around in certain ways, and this is all very naturalistic, even if uh, there are names of divinity um, used to refer to laws of nature and so on, or even the elements themselves. That's just a poetical, I think, um, way of speaking. But um, even with this strong naturalistic drive, Empedocles does not have with all the resources that he needs for explaining all the natural phenomena that he wants to explain. So maybe he needs something more, and maybe he doesn't have it, or maybe he has it and we don't have it in the text that we have. So that's an interesting um, question. Briefly, um, yeah, uh, just again, oh, oh sorry, on the previous note, it seems to me that, um, again, uh, it, it just so happens that, although I disagree with Alexander Morelak's interpretation of Empedocles, I found a bunch of interesting um, um, claims that he makes that resonate with what I want to say. That one comment that he makes that I, I like is that it seems to me that at this point in the history of philosophy, um, the, uh, the Greeks are trying to explain the world not by just the whim of capricious gods, they are trying to capture the regularities in nature, they are trying to capture what causes what, they are trying to think about principles and um, it makes a lot of sense to think that Empedocles was motivated in the same way. That's after what Parmenides is telling us. I mean, think about what's constant, what's stable, what's regular, 
Um, and um, the idea of laissez nature really captures, I think, this kind of, um, um, or the idea that Empedocles was trying to explain what we call laws of nature, I think, is very much in that direction. But coming now to the very last section of my paper, is it the power ontology? Is it power structuralism? At this point, I really want to throw the question on the table, and I think that our further um, discussions in today and tomorrow might help illuminate in the question more than that I would do myself just now. But let me just say a couple of, of things about this. Well, the, uh, a caveat, of course, that we cannot um, expect to find in Empedocles writings all the fine-grained distinctions that um, philosophers elaborated subsequently. It, it requires a lot of sophistication, I think, to um, account. Okay, so let, let's, let me just, let me just say, uh, sort of withdraw and just say, yes, the caveat is that we might not find all the necessary conceptual distinctions to really say whether it is a power structuralist ontology or not. But I think it's fairly clear that Empedocles admits causal powers in his ontology, and he has a power ontology. The fact that love and strife are empowering conditions does not entail that the elements are inert stuff at all. Um, the elements are primitively powerful stuff which gets further empowered by laws of nature, love and strife. So there are powers, maybe they're not pure powers in the way we contemporary metaphysicians define them, where all there is to the nature of the power is just its powerfulness. Um, that's an open question and that might be a question that we cannot Settle on the basis of what we have in Empedocles, but I'm really looking forward to your thoughts on this um, as well. Uh, if it is a, a power ontology, the powers in play are not quite the same powers um, that um, we uh, identify uh, after Aristotle. So, pre-Socratic power, the pre-Socratics, I think, conceived the powers not um, not quite in the same way as Aristotle did. As um, properties directed towards their manifestation, properties that um, have two states, in potentiality and in actuality. Uh, this is not um, identifiable in the Priscratics. I've worked uh, on this in relation to Anaxagoras and it's um, working properties for me in relation to Empedocles. But nevertheless, there are powers. There are powers that are permanently activated. They're constantly active. They constantly do what they can do. It's not that they, they transition from a state of potentiality to a state of actuality, uh, but they constantly do what they do. So, it's a power ontology. It is a power ontology that includes powers of this different kind from the powers that we're used to think about after Aristotle. Um, it's a power ontology that includes interesting types of powers, maybe normative powers, as I mentioned before. And then finally, is, is this ontology a power structuralist ontology? So very briefly, a structural ontology would be one in which um, for all the items in that ontology, what each one is, is determined by its location in the structure, i.e. by the relations that one item holds with all the other items in the system. An example of things that are structurally defined are, for example, the natural numbers, which are defined by their respective order in the sequence. And in, so if you have that, pick, you know, that example in mind, then just replace um, number with powers. Uh, in the case of power structure, is the entities that are so conceived as interrelated definitionally and, and, and even existentially um, would be powers. Um, uh, each power would be defined in this ontology by its place in the structure of interactions or interdependencies with the other powers. It's an open question, as I say, if, uh, for me at this stage, if um, Pelopris ontology is a power ontology, 
uh, sorry, it's a power structuralist ontology. Certainly, it's a power ontology. It's unclear, I guess, if it is um, a power structuralist ontology for the following reason that there seem to be properties that are inert qualities of the elements. Now, if so, the consequence is that this might be a power structuralist ontology where there are also qualities, maybe, so it would be a variant of power structuralism, um, or there may be ways of explaining a way it is residual inertness that characterizes the elements also in terms of causal action. And um, that's um, something to look forward to for me in future work. So thanks very much.